The miller's wife had waited long. The tea was cold, the fire was dead, and there might yet be nothing wrong in how he went and what he said. There are no millers any more, was all that she had heard him say. And he had lingered at the door so long that it seemed yesterday. Sick with a fear that had no form, she knew that she was there at last. And in the mill, there was a warm and mealy fragrance of the past. What else there was would only seem to say again what he had meant, and what was hanging from a beam would not have heeded where she went. And if she thought it followed her, she may have reasoned in the dark that one way of the few there were would hide her and would leave no mark. Black water, smooth above the weir, like starry velvet in the night, though ruffled once, would soon appear the same as ever to the sight. The Mill by Edward Arlington Robinson Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. One of the most loved of British children's television programmes from the 1970s was Bagpuss. Sadly running for only 13 episodes, Bagpuss remains oft repeated to this day and is certainly easily available to view in this house. It is of great interest to us as folklorists as it draws on many traditional beliefs and folk themes and also uses traditional song in each episode as a storytelling mechanism. More about that at the end of this podcast. The shop, Bagpuss & Co, is owned by a young girl called Emily. Bagpuss himself is an old cloth cat who Emily is able to bring to life. And when Bagpuss wakes up, all the other toys in the shop do the same. The shop does not sell anything, but Emily puts anything she finds lost in the window for people to reclaim. In the episode The Mouse Mill, Emily finds and brings back to the shop a toy mill. The toy mice on the organ in the shop try to convince the others that this is a chocolate biscuit mill and will produce biscuits using breadcrumbs and butter beans. Indeed it does, but the mice very quickly wheel the biscuits away safely before anyone can try them. Professor Yaffle, a carved wooden bookend in the shape of a woodpecker, remains unconvinced by the mill, and eventually reveals it to be the mice playing a trick on the others. You can find the episode available to watch on YouTube, and I recommend doing so for at least this, if not the whole series. It is a beautiful, gentle and meaningful programme, the likes of which we rarely see anymore. 
The motif of the miller is very strong in folklore, as are other skilled people in a community, such as weavers. We've heard before about how these people often form part of folk ghost stories, because their skills are sometimes reflected as being slightly otherworldly by the general populace. In this episode of the podcast, we hear a recording from this year's Folklore Society conference on the role of the miller in folklore, delivered by one of the great British folklorists in the old tradition, that is, not affiliated to an academic institution, Jeremy Hart. Jeremy has a particular interest in landscape legends and tales of encounters with the inhabitants of other worlds. His book Explore Fairy Traditions won the Catherine Briggs Award of the Folklore Society for 2005, and his other publications include Cuckoo Pounds and Singing Barrows and The Green Man. He recently authored a chapter on fairies in the book Magical Folk, in which I also feature. Jeremy is curator of Bourne Hall Museum in Surrey. There was an accompanying PowerPoint for this talk, but the content stands up fine without this reference. To lead you in, the talk begins visually with a picture of a moth, and it is to this which Jeremy first refers. That's a miller. <laughs> it is. Um, it, it is the moth known as a miller. It's the... Um, the English genus, which goes by that name, um, the idea of calling a moth a miller is in fact so popular um, that they carried it across the Atlantic, where they have slightly different lepidoptera, uh, and there's a sequence of American moths also known as millers. Uh, and the reason why it is known as a miller is because if you pick it up, if it happens to be resting somewhere near you, you will have a white flower left all over your fingers, because it's the stuff that moths and butterflies have on their wings. Um, so it therefore immediately carries the, um, the trope, the identifying feature of a miller, which is that he's covered in white flour. Uh, he is Dusty Miller, um, and in the codified world of you know, pre-modern industry, um, he carries that around with him. I remember when I was working, I, I did a project on Dorset Millers a couple of years ago, um, and there, there was um, an inquiry. This was a slightly higher status gentleman who had actually been um, on the parish vestry, um, and there was a polite advertisement asking what had happened to him and the vestry money because both of them had disappeared. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I was delighted to know they described him with, with his, you know, four pie hat and everything. Uh, and then finally, having the general appearance of a miller. And obviously, if you saw a guy leaving a trail of white flour behind him, then you stopped him and asked him. But the miller also appears um, under another denomination in Dorset folklore, um, also known as the soul. Um, because moths flitter around looking white at night and therefore have got a good identity that way. Um, Dorset children, frolicking around in the dust just before they're about to get called in by their mothers for supper, would catch a dusty miller, um, hold him up to inspection and shout, Millery, Millery, dusty pole, only sacks us the astrol. Four and twenty and a peck hang up Millery by his neck, which was the end of the career of the moth. Oh, dear. So, yes, yes, in the proverb, you know, as, as the old um, pipes of the young play, um, the, the ritualised killing of millers, if only in the form of moss, uh, was a folk response to their status. They were the kind of people it was all right to help, all right, all right to hate. Uh, they, they were the, the immigrants of the 18th century. 
and also they carry with them a slight aura of the supernatural. This this is a haunted mill. In, in fact, this is courtesy of the Illustrated Police News. If none of you have ever had encounters with it, uh, it is a superlative journal. Um, this is a mill which casts a spooky shadow resembling a skull and crossbones. Uh, and you can see that has not been done by an artist who was sent out to do it locally. It's been locked up in London in a hurry. Um, but it is terrifying to Sussex um, rustics, uh, one of whom, in the best folklore tradition, will go home and die of fright, uh, while the other one finds out that it's only a shadow. Um, the reason why mills are good to think with, um, if you want to have an, an aura of supernatural and suspense, um, is because for a long, long time they are the only machinery in village life that kind of has independent moving parts of its own. Um, you know, you turn on the wind or the water um, and the mill starts doing stuff and there is nothing else that is, you know, in a traditional, even in an early modern village, that works autonomously. Um, so they tend to arouse a kind of thoughts of, it's slightly freaky. Um, it helps, of course, because the, um, the supply of wind and water are both of them natural and highly variable. Um, water will slosh onto. I mean, it's very difficult to stop either of those bits of machinery once they start going. There's all sorts of traditional Miller stories about what the hell you did once it had started going round and round. Um, it was actually a good idea, and some Millers promoted the idea that their mill was haunted. Um, if you've got an overshot wheel where it's water and it's dropping onto it, um, a little water builds up in the penstock, the thing that feeds it, and this used to be encouraged because every now and then, as the water built up, it would slosh over the end and drop on the wheel, and the wheel would creak. Mills are also extremely auditory. Go around a little bit, and any grain thief who was contemplating sneaking in and sealing a stack or something would rush away convinced that the mill was operating under its own accord. Mills also have an archaic history, um, which gives them a rather you know, higher status than they will have later on. The mill is initially the quern. The quern is initially the brilliant idea that you can grind grain by turning one stone round and round on top of another. Um, from the Iron Age, this is obviously highly ritualised, you get them in deposits in pits and things, the sealing devices, and there is enough Northern European material to suggest that the mill becomes a cosmological diagram. I mean, because the mill produces flour and you can't live without bread once a grain economy comes in, Therefore, the mill is the thing that transmutes nature into food. Therefore, the mill is the origin of all good things. Um, this is the mill grotti. Um, no consecutive story, but Snorri Sturluson gives you a few clues about his stories. It's being ground by the giantesses Benya and Fenya, um, who have been hijacked uh, for this purpose by Frothy the Good. Um, Frothy was... Uh, you know, delighted to find that as long as Menu and Fender kept on doing their stuff, it ground out unlimited quantities of peace and gold, one at each side. Uh, the giantesses were slightly less happy, and as they worked their way round, like all supernatural beings, they hated being enslaved for human good, but couldn't do anything about it, until finally they chant out a curse on Frothy and his household, and then this is his hall going up in flames, and the giantesses are about to triumphantly free themselves. <laughs> But the mill here, and you know, the, the equivalent versions um, are found also the ultimate creative mill with the finished sample. Um, it's good to think with because you've got that central axis brought out here. Um, because there's one round thing lying flat, 
and another round thing going round and round on top. It's an automatic metaphor for the heavens with the central axis going up, and this is used in a lot of kind of cosmological diagrams. Um, therefore, you think about <coughs> the sky occasionally with the kind of decorative millbox uh, representing the constellations on the sky going round and round and grinding out the seasons, and the mill then becomes a kind of metaphor for time. And a lot of this is actually carried over. I mean, one of the things about water mills as a technology is that they become available really in northern Europe. They're a Roman invention, Mediterranean invention, but they become available from the 6th, 7th century. Um, the earliest ones being found in Ireland, either due to Irish talent or maybe due to the fact that bogs are preserving a lot of wooden machinery better than you get around here. Um, but they're associated automatically with saints, so they do a big cosmological diagram. Um, this is St. Molling Luther, um, who was famous during a time of famine for picking up handfuls <coughs> of bracken uh, and furs and feeding it into the mill where it emerged as flour out the other end. So the same, you know, grinding out survival rather than prosperity, but the same supernatural power to have the mill working is available here. And the idea of the saint's power over the mill undergoes a kind of transformation. Saints in an early medieval British Isles are to be found at royal and monastic complexes. So where the new technology is, there you will be as well. And there's one lovely story about um, King Constantine, um, a Cornish king who kind of, you know, took early retirement and appeared at a monastery clad in sackcloth and just kind of, oh, you know, no, 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 I, I, I haven't done much really, I'm, I'm a penitent, can you take me on? And they don't know what to do with him because he doesn't look like safe material. Uh, so they kind of go, well, we've got a quern, obviously a hand quern, you don't mind grinding for the monastery, do you? If you've ever actually used a quern, after about 20 minutes, you're knackered. Um, but because he's so penitent, you know, he, he's, he's doing this all, all day, and then, you know, until one night, the light is seen emerging from his cell. Um, and one of the novices looks in, and there is St. Constantine, as they realise, on his knees in prayer, surrounded by light. And there is his quern going round and round, busily all by itself, and that's how he's feeding the monastery. And what I love about this, you know, that's a classic case of a survival. I know we're not supposed to have too many survivals, but that's one. You know, in which primitive technology, the quern that won't turn by itself, um, is actually reimagined uh, as a miracle by people who themselves were actually starting to acquire mills that turned autonomously. Um, because the earliest kind of mill that you get in the British Isles, uh, afterwards effectively banished to the, the remoter areas, largely because the remoter you are in Britain, the faster the streams are, and this sort of thing requires a very, very rapid head of mountain water to work it. Um, this is what they call the, the vertical or nor north square, and this is in fact um, a Shetland example, um, coming from, um, ooh, where, where, where is it, Tangwick. Um, the water comes down there, it hits what's effectively at the bottom there, uh, a turbine, the central shaft, which we've seen, turns up, engages with the upper millstone, you've got a hopper dropping the grain down through, the upper millstone turns at the same speed as the shaft, it goes round and round, and it looks tremendously impressive, because you can hear the water rushing round and, and hitting the turbine. Um, in fact, for various technical reasons, mainly because the whole thing's made out of wood, it turns comparatively slowly. Um, a modern millstone, if you're actually working at um, the best version, is about 120 revolutions a minute. And these are going about a quarter of the speed, so they're grinding much more slowly. 
the logic is that the hopper, the, uh, the thing up above there, would be filled up with a single sack, the dimension of the sack are dependent on what you can carry on your back, and it will drop down slowly into the mill. And these things, as you can see, are just little huts near the stream. Um, and you go there, you put your stuff in, you wait for it to go through again, you take it home. No miller involved. The logical consequence being that this is a, a building in which action takes place autonomously, but it's a lonely building that you go to and come back from after doing your stuff. It's kind of the, um, the British equivalent of the Russian farmhouse. Because it's abandoned, it's spooky. And therefore, all of these primitive mills have got traditions associating them with fairies. Um, Tangwick did actually have the Shukulti, which is a version of the water horse, who was seen by somebody late at night carrying away the sack of flour. Um, a lot of them have got associated fairies. Uh, this is Alan Lee's version of the Scottish kiln mullis. Um, the kiln, in fact, kilns being the Scottish time necessary to dry up the grain in the first place. Um, servant of, of the kiln. Um, wanting the mouth, it says. I think the original version was that he was toothless, but he's been drawn here delicately with no mouth whatsoever. <laughs> uh, the tradition, you know, the Catherine Briggs thing about the deformities of the fairies. Now, like all of these brownie servant characters, he hangs around and, you know, does good some of the time and can be a nuisance otherwise. And then what you get with these fairy mill traditions, they then become associated with supernatural encounters in the mill itself. Um, Shetland again, you, you've got the Winya Depler story, um, where again, you have somebody going to the mill, obviously it's some distance from settlement, because it has to be wherever the water is at sufficient speed to work it, um, putting his sack in, sitting down and waiting for it to go through, which can be a couple of hours. And this is after a walk in the wet, so he dozes off. Um, gets up, or rather comes conscious to notice that a couple of the trowels, the Shetland fairies, have made their way into the mill um, because the mill is dry, comparatively, and warm. It's a nice place if you're a spirit of the wild to come in and get out of the, uh, the weather. Um, and then the female trowel sits down, nurses her baby where it's nice and comfortable. Um, the male one then picks up his fiddle, which he's carrying with him, and starts playing a tune. And the, the guy has enough sense not to fully regain consciousness, but just keeps his eyes halfway open, memorises the tune. When they've left, he writes it down. That's the fiddle tune, Winya Depto, which a lot of people are still playing. So the mill becomes a place where you can have one of those kind of positive encounters. You've then got a whole lot of developed stories. And this is actually kind of a fairy version of what otherwise in Europe, um, it, it seems to have pan-European distribution, Variant stories of the Devil's Mill, um, which are usually based on um, ATU 1137, the, the Me Myself story. Uh, the classic one is, is Fincastle, uh, which has worked out quite nicely because Fincastle interests me. It's obviously a story, again, from a primitive mill, which has been taken on to the next type of mill that actually has a resident miller, because they go into a lot of explanation about, oh, the girl wants to have some flour for her wedding cake, and the miller can't do it for her on time, but she goes in late at night, operates the mill herself, do not try doing this. They are, you know, quite complicated bits of machinery. Um, grinds the flour, and then halfway through, um, in comes the, um, the brownie of the mill. Um, and, you know, the brownie kind of gets a little bit friendly with the girl. 
one of the hazards, obviously, of you know, visiting buildings in the middle of nowhere if you're a <coughs> female. Uh, fortunately, she has decided to make herself a cup of tea while she's getting the wedding cake ready. So halfway through, she sloshes brownie uh, boiling water over the brownie. Um, and then the brownie flees scalded. She, of course, in the traditional fashion of the story, has previously introduced herself as having the name Me Myself. Um, the brownie, when asked by his mum what happened, says, me myself did it, and his mum kind of goes, well, there you go, it's an industrial accident that would have happened to any of us. Um, and then there's this lovely coda, because the girl goes back, um, bakes the wedding cake, um, glorious wedding party, um, and being, being a, a natural raconteur is telling the story of how she succeeded in, in um, you know, baking the wedding cake. And every year at the wedding anniversary, she repeats this until one year the mother brownie is going past. Um, and eavesdropping on the amusing human folktales that they will tell to each other, realises what it's all about, picks up a three-legged stool, hurls it through the window and kills the girl. Probably the best developed out of this sequence of stories. But you can see the fundamental need for this is the spookiness of the visit to the mill on which everything else has been crafted. But the technology, like all technology, was ready for an update. Um, this is taken from um, Herard de Landsberg's Hortus Deliciarum, so it has all sorts of excellent spiritual meanings that we don't need to go into. Um, it's an excursus on, on the gospel passage. Um, two um, women shall be grinding at the mill, one of them shall be taken and one of them shall be left. Obviously, what Christ meant in the parable was the handwork, that being the only thing available. Um, but Herat has upgraded this, and she's shown a medieval water mill. Um, on, on your left, you've got the, uh, the water wheel um, with paddles undershot, because that was the earliest technology, so the stream's hitting it from below. Um, then it is turning a second wheel, um, the cog wheel, a bit sticking out of it, primitive cogs, it has to be said, which engage there with a thing called the lantern, which has slots in it. Um, the principle being there are more cogs on the cogwheel than there are slots in the lantern, therefore you are grading up the gearing. Therefore, where they're feeding in the grain through the hopper and the millstones, the millstones are doing something like 60 to 90 if the stream is being properly harnessed, and is actually reaching a high level of efficiency. What that means, moving from technicalities to economy, is that the mill can now actually turn stuff through fairly rapidly. You don't have to sit there waiting all night for it to do a single sack. But the outcome of that is you've actually got a piece of machinery now that needs maintaining. Also, as this sort of stuff becomes available and is rolled out, because it is producing a product that you can control by controlling the one location where it happens, the mill becomes of much more interest minority. So rather than being an adjunct to a villa regardless or a monastic compound, it becomes a place which is in the village, but which is under the duty of the Lord. And the Lord, therefore, is very concerned to take taxes out of it and to get people to go there. So what you've also got, and Herard has, has taken this as, as read, um, the two women at the mill are no, no longer operating the mill. They're turning up with their sacks. They are, therefore, at the mercy of the miller. Um, this is... Um, from, from the um, Ellesmere manuscript. This, this is Chaucer's Miller. Um, yeah, the, co the colours have gone slightly wrong because he's definitely said to have red Judas hair. Um, he plays a bagpipe, which apparently is a sign of having a lower and more animalistic nature. Um, and, you know, the whole structure of both um, the Miller's tale um, and the Reeves' tale, which counteracts it, is they're both about illicit sex. Um, so the Miller is carrying with him an, an aura of lust. Uh, and then again, precisely because of this reason, 
This is from the Luptal Psalter again. Um, on your left-hand side, you've got the um, you know, standard medieval exemplar of the, uh, the man who is so loving to his horse that um, you know, he, he you know, succeeds in loading the uh, sack on, on onto its back and, and then sitting on it to carry the sack so the horse doesn't get hurt. Um, and then on the right-hand side, the, um, the wife from the village is handing over hers to the miller, um, who has got a dog, notably, to guard the property, suggesting that, in fact, he's storing something on, on the, uh, the premises. So he's actually storing stuff that people want to steal for the first time. So the economy now is based on having people coming in, um, visiting, staying quite possibly, because they've kind of got an excuse, so I didn't want to leave it with him. Also staying out of suspicion, this is what the, um, the, the narrative is about in the Reeves tale, um, that they're not going to get as much back, or of course they're not going to get the same grain turned into the same flour, because at, the, at this stage you're still in a very primitive economy where he's doing it. But also this peasant feeling that you're actually giving your grain to this guy, and of course he's not returning all of it to you because he's taking the toll. Um, so the, the, me the mechanism is that he takes a proportion because this is an under-monetized economy. Um, he takes his payment by taking stuff. So there's that horrible peasant feeling that your stuff is being taken off you, worst of all, by somebody who isn't actually manufacturing but providing a service. Uh, so he is hated almost as much as a shopkeeper, that evil person who takes your goods and then sells them on to other people but charges more than you could have got. And, you know, and this medieval feeling is it's just not right for somebody to be doing that. All medieval service industries um, have folk opprobrium. Um, you think about the lawyer. Uh, you know, again, anybody who does something which doesn't physically produce something is regarded as being on the make. At the same time, it is automatically assumed that Mrs. Miller is, you know, easy game for anyone. And again, this comes back to the Reeves tale that, you know, it's, it's from Fablio world. Uh, in Fablio world, the first thing a girl thinks when she finds a young student getting into bed with her is not to ask any questions, but, well, hey, it's a young student. <laughs> so does the Miller's wife. Um, this is one of the Devonshire tapestries. You've got the mill in the middle ground there. Um, the Devonshire tapestries are all about a bunch of um, you know, beautifully dressed, happy um, young people in, in uh, rural, rural outings going out and killing things. Um, they do a little bit of fishing, which is why they're next to the river. Therefore, you put in the, the water mill again. You can see the, uh, the wheel at the back. Um, there's the miller's wife, who has been interrupted by one of them. She seems to be slightly more reluctant, but you'll notice the miller appears to be extremely happy about it. Presumably because he's charging for this service as for all others. Um, then you've got versions of this, like the, um, the Charlton Horn Fair story, in which King John, who is your standard, you know, traditional folk king, is going out, um, has sex with the miller's wife, is caught coming back by the miller, buys the miller off by establishing an annual fair and giving him a grant of land, and everybody is happy, because that's the way things are in Fabio world. On the other hand, in Ballads, Everything Ends Unhappily, um, this is the Trois Sisters, uh, which has a number of variants towards the end. Um, we, we've got a unified plot development. Um, two sisters jealous of each other. Sister A pushes Sister B into the salt water because they've gone down to see their father's ships. Um, in a slightly improbable narrative element, Sister B then swims upstream um, along a, a nearby creek and ends up at the Miller's Dam. Um, I think so that she, you know, you know, getting drowned in mill ponds was an occupational hazard. Um, the Holy Book in Reading um, actually is holy not for any sacred reason because it fed the Abbey Mills and, and other of those uh, porosity things. 
Um, and uh, when they actually had the Reading report on um, sewage provision and, and drainage, they, they said they had to cover it in because 184 children had been drowned there in the last five years. So, you know, it's a place where you expect to find a dead body. And then it moves on to the next stage, which gets turned into a musical instrument and all that. But some versions just have a Miller's Pond pull her out. Some versions have Miller pulls her out, removes her gay gold ring, and then pushes her back in again, because what do you do with a half-drowned princess who you removed all the valuables from? So, you know, not, o not only from being, you know, a character who is dodgy to women, but now actually thieving as well. As I say, the great problem was that you've got this arrangement whereby he can only run the mill by taking toll. Um, that's a bushel on the right-hand side. Um, you'll notice the peck, which is a quarter bushel there, um, and then a smaller vessel up at the top. In theory, there, there are various codified arrangements. It was about a 20th or a 24th that the miller was allowed to take in toll. But there are profound suspicions that he's doing worse than that. Um, the roguish miller, available as a ballad. Very interesting, actually, because this one was written um, obviously late 18th. Um, because it specifies the narrative of, of the miller who takes triple toll, if he can, by getting, you know, his son and the maidservant just to take it all over again in case he missed it out the first time. You have to be sure. Um, you know, they, again, this is one of the mill proverbs. Um, you know, take, take toll again, so the miller just to be sure. There's, there's a whole stretch of proverbial philosophy which is pinning the miller, um, some of which are traditional analogies. Um, <clears throat> How brave is he? Well, he's as bold as the miller's to that cloth, which takes a thief by the throat every morning. Uh, put a, a miller, a tailor, and a weaver in a bag and shake them out. The first one to come out is certain to be a thief. So all of this is structuring um, how you think about millers. This one is interesting because it is actually didactic as well. Um, in the rest of the ballad, it goes on to say, well, if only he'd taken money, um, he could have been an honest man. Why do they still carry on taking toll? Um, this only exists in, in a couple of versions. The really popular Miller's Ballad is a Miller's advice to his three sons, uh, you know, which has no narrative development whatsoever. Uh, Miller is old and dying. Miller has three sons. Uh, Miller asks them, you know, what are they going to do about taking toll? Um, Jack, Jack, of course, says you're a peck, which if you realised is a 25% break-off. Um, and, and is turned down for, you know, having no idea how to conduct business. 50% um, um, says Ralph, uh, Rafe, sorry, Rafe, take the hive. Um, and then the third son proceeds to say, well, personally, what I normally do is I take the entire contents of the bushel and then I nick the sack as well and say that the miller's boy took it on his way back home. Uh, and he, of course, is one who gets the milk. And <laughs> the problem about these things, of course, is like, how long does these continue? on a kind of autonomous life circulating. Um, the fact that this has many versions in America kind of suggests that, like, you know, late 17th, early 18th century, it was still thought topical enough to transfer across the Atlantic. But what does for it in the end is technology. Um, this is kind of tertiary stage in mill development. There's a lot going on in there, so mm. all you need to worry about is that central shaft thing going up there, yeah. where you can see that, in fact, what's happening, there's a big circular wheel, then the, um, the wallower there is, is the equivalent of the old cogwheel. It steps it up twice, so you're reaching a full 120 RPM, and then you've got multiple um, millstones going off it. Now, the capacity of this, and the fact that on that um, attic floor you can actually store grain, 
means that the miller is actually now buying in grain and selling on the byproducts. So he's no longer taking your stuff. What he's doing is supplying the whole chain. I mean, a lot of them actually ran bakeries themselves and produced it as far as the loaf. Suddenly, they're also charging a flat rate, um, threepence per bushel. And the whole structure of the villainous miller collapses once he is no longer stealing. You know, he's got no, no, no reason to. He's charging a flat rate. This is the old pub sign from the Honest Miller in, in Ashford. It's now been replaced, I'm afraid, by a far, far jollier one. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can see why he's unhappy. He hasn't got any ears. Um, when the Romans, or possibly the Saxons, or one of that lot, were, were, were in Kent, um, they, they took um, all the, the, the ears off a miller who, who took away too much of the toll. Uh, and all the remaining millers um, immediately started putting up a sign saying, I am an honest miller. <laughs> and then there's that lovely transition moment. Um, where you've actually got folk-styled reflections on Miller's honesty, including the gravestone of Mr. Strange. Mr. Strange operated a mill. God, what a send-off for the parish clerk, who exceeded in having the illustration done on his tombstone of a nice little millstone with, here lies an honest Miller, and that is Strange. <laughs> <laughs> and you end up with the jolly Miller, who has no moral faults whatsoever. <laughs> See? Don't say you can't learn anything from folk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. My thanks to Jeremy for giving permission for this recording to be broadcast on the Folklore Podcast, and my thanks to all of you for bearing with us while we moved house and waited for our broadband to catch us up. We are still getting sorted, but the podcast should be getting back to normal now. At the top of this episode, I spoke briefly about the children's TV programme Bagpuss and its importance and influence on British culture and folk song and storytelling. The two characters in the programme who took the storytelling and song aspect were Madeline the Rag Doll and Gabriel the Toad, voiced by the great British folk singers Sandra Kerr and John Faulkner. I'm delighted to say that Sandra will be joining me on the podcast later in the year to discuss their role in Bagpuss and the importance of folk song on storytelling and tradition. It is an episode you will want to make sure that you don't miss. More about that when Sandra and I have a recording date fixed. In the meantime, with Sandra's permission, here she is with John Faulkner singing the song from the Mouse Mill episode of Bagpuss, The Miller's Song. A fitting way to end this episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Come and come and plough me a field, turn me an acre of wine. Plough and plough and harrow the ground, drill in the seed and roll it down, for the year will turn and the spring come round and the seed will the sun and rain the rain fall the shivery snow frost and hail and wind again as the year will go farmer farmer the field is ripe tall and straight they stand farmer farmer it's time to reap time to combine the corn
the straw will blow and the chaff will leap and the grain will flow. Shine the sun, rain the rain, fall the shivery snow. Fog and sleet and hail again as the year will go. Miller, miller, take up the grain, pour it out like sand. Miller, miller, open the rill to turn the wheel and work the mill to grind the grain to flour. Sun and rain, the rain, fall the shivery snow. Hail and wind and sleet again, as the year will. Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>